Why do pretty much all my games begin with combat? Is there something wrong with me? Or is there good reason to open our play with a fight? Hey, it's Che, and this is Roleplay Rescue. Hello Rescuers, welcome back to Roleplay Rescue, the podcast about rediscovering our lost roleplaying games hobby. Ever since I first began roleplaying, I've always been engaged by a good fight scene. Combat has been the way in which I almost always begin to learn a new game, and you can bet your bottom dollar in any scenario that I run will open with a fight. Why is that? Is it because, as I alluded to back in Season 9, I am at heart a munchkin? One of those kids who came into the hobby in the late 70s and 80s as a pre-teen adventurer with a predilection for violence? Or is it a little bit more nuanced, having to do with a variety of factors, not least being that every example a player began with included combat as a key focus? My belief is that, yes, as someone who is deeply engaged by challenge and who began with tabletop hex and shit wargames, small unit and man-to-man combat was the way in which I first found enjoyment at the table. But it's far deeper than that, and my enjoyment of combat has to do with game structures, being alone, and the wider culture of gaming in the 1980s. This is Season 12, Episode 4, On Combat. Sometime between 1977 and 1980, I played Traveller with my friends for the very first time. I know that I got my own set sometime in late 1980 or 1981, before the 1981 revision was released in the UK, but I didn't own that game until after Dad bought RuneQuest in 1980. My earliest memories of role-playing games involved a small team of travellers getting into firefights in the wilds of alien worlds. This trend in our group's SF play continued with Star Frontiers in 1982 through until, I don't know, about 1986. Crash on Volturnus was a strongly memorable module for me, involving a pirate fight and then combats with weird alien creatures in the desert. RuneQuest fascinated me for two reasons. Firstly, the idea of role-playing in a fantasy world that was quite different to the standard D&D tropes which we'd already been exposed to through advanced D&D. And secondly, the idea of a much more detailed man-to-man fighting. If there was one area that appealed, and still appeals, to my inner simulationist, it's the verisimilitude of detailed combat. Traveller and D&D basically operated on the idea that you roll to hit, and then you roll to do damage. D&D sets this against the opponent's armour class, a target number you need to equal or beat to hit. Traveller sets this up as a basic 8 plus on 2d6 target number, which is modified by numerous factors such as the character's skill, the range and the weapon itself, to name just what I can remember off the top of my head. I always found D&D's abstract handling of the fight to be... lacking. Traveller gave us the idea that armour would reduce damage taken, and the armour class thing never really made any sense to me after that. It still doesn't. 
RuneQuest introduced, at least to me, the idea of hit locations, parries, and the to-and-fro of man-to-man combat in the combat round. You roll to hit with your weapon, and the other guy gets to try and parry with a shield or their own weapon, and if you beat their parry, then you've got to deal damage. I also enjoyed the rules for impaling weapons such as spears and arrows which led to more damage and things sticking out of wounds. It was my earliest taste of what Arlen Walker calls bone crunch. The idea that as you inflict strikes upon the opponent you can imagine the crunch of blade on bone and the blood flowing which all sounds a bit gory now said out loud. And so it continued, because we got hold of Rollmaster's Arms and Claw lore and bolted it onto D&D, leading to a brief renaissance of playing the original fantasy game until Rollmaster released the full box set, and we switched all our fantasy gaming to that system. Why? Well, it was the detailed combat system, with its critical strike rules that appealed to us the most. We were also attracted to the publication of modules detailing Middle-Earth, although we didn't really get into Middle-Earth role-playing because... Coming after Rollmaster itself, it was felt to be a Rollmaster light and not as satisfying. Which is to point out that at this time, what we wanted from our roleplaying was detail and verisimilitude in our fighting. Yes, we explored Moria and delved many a dungeon. We also trekked across Middle-earth, or at least our teenage pseudo-Middle-earth powered by Rollmaster, and had many an adventure. Eventually, we ran 24-hour mega sessions to raise money for charity and justify the amount of time this group of seven role players spent playing the silly fantasy games our parents all disapproved of. Perhaps we were munchkins, but the reality is that our group was broadly isolated and the way in which we played didn't impact any other groups because there were no other groups that we knew of. No clubs, the game shop staff were wargamers who would sell us the products but disapproved of them and nobody's parents approved either. This was our special thing that nobody else understood. It's no wonder that elsewhere in the world, role players were being regarded as weird cultist types with dubious morals. Fighting was important in our gaming from the beginning, and I think it was in the DNA of early role playing games, and for me, it was a big part of the fun of playing. But the other reason was that the combat was something I could easily enjoy alone. As a teen, I was often alone. This was a time before cell phones, before the internet, as in the World Wide Web, and even before telephones were widely used socially. I lived in a relatively isolated residential suburban estate, and there were only 12 or so other kids that I was safe to hang around with. Yeah, 12 I counted, and 10 of them were into role-playing games. The high school group was seven, myself included. It grew to eight briefly but the other player had medical issues and lived too far away to be able to attend regularly. And there were two other close neighbours, both of whom were slightly younger than me, but they weren't allowed to play with us. I would occasionally game with them during holidays if they were allowed to come over, but that was rare. My point is that after school finished and I went home for dinner, I spent an awful lot of time alone in my room. Listening to hard rock and metal, for sure, but playing games was my sanity check. From the earliest days, while I was still in middle school, I would go to my room, close the door, and play Risk or other hex and shit war games solo. When role-playing games came along, I began first to make characters when I was alone, and in time, I started to run combat solo. And the reason I could do that was because, when I look back on it, the combat is the most basic game structure of the role-playing game. What's a game structure? Well, I guess to answer that, especially for new listeners, I'm first going to have to quote the Alexandrian from his blog Sequence, in which he coined the term game structure. 
Quote, One of the most overlooked aspects in the design and play of traditional role-playing games is the underlying game structure, or to put it another way, there are two questions which every game designer and GM must ask themselves. One, what do the characters do? Two, how do the players do it? These questions might seem deceptively simple, but the answers are complex, and getting the right answers is absolutely critical to having a successful gaming session, end quote. Justin goes on to explain that successful game structures provide four things. A default goal, a default action, they're easy to prep, and they're easy to run. As the micro-game structure that underlines almost all traditional RPGs, the combat is probably the most fundamental game structure of all. He writes, quote, Tied into the success of the dungeon crawl is the success of traditional combat systems in role-playing games. Although individual mechanics may vary, virtually all role-playing games use a basic game structure for combat derived from D&D. This in itself is derived from tabletop wargames. The average RPG combat system supplies clear-cut answers to the questions of what do I do and how do I do it, or to break it down, default goal, kill or incapacitate your opponents, default action, hit them, easy to prep, grab a bunch of monsters from the monster manual, easy to run, the combat system breaks the action down into a specific sequence and usually provides a fairly comprehensive method of how each action should be resolved. This is one of the reasons why so many role-playing games focus so much mechanical attention on combat. No matter how much the players may be floundering, all you have to do is throw a couple of thugs at them and suddenly everyone at the table knows what to do. It's a comfortable and easy position to default to. End quote. I think it's easy from this extract to understand why, at least for me, the combat scene has become a steady starting point and a regular feature of all my scenarios. Quote, it's a comfortable and easy position to default to, end quote. Alone in the bedroom, I could roll up or design some characters and then pit them against some foes from the game in question. It was enjoyable and simple to prep and run alone. I could enjoy the challenge of taking on increasingly tough situations and foes, and it was a complete play experience in itself. This last point is the most significant. Because combat is a game structure, it's a complete play experience. In itself. Game structures provide role-playing games with the elements they need to function as games. On their own, RPG rules are not truly games because they lack any inherent goals. Because most games also completely fail to tell us how to play, they lack an explicit methodology of play, it's generally pretty difficult to get ourselves started. The first game structure that almost all RPGs include right there in the rulebook is the combat. As Justin Alexander says, quote, Derived from tabletop war games, the average RPG combat system supplies clear-cut answers to the questions of what do I do and how do I do it, end quote. Thinking back to the early days of the hobby, it's no wonder that aspiring role players began by focusing on combat. Add to this the fact that the second major game structure, the Dungeon Crawl, was a feature of most RPGs in the 1970s and 1980s, and that dungeon crawls usually involved monsters from whom you would go and loot treasure, and it's kind of easy to see why combat is a key focus for most gaming groups. We see this in full bloom as D&D went through the second, then third, and fourth editions. Even today, D&D is pretty much a battle game with exploration and interaction tacked on. 
with the demise of a clear dungeon crawl game structure explicitly laid out in the rulebooks, most gamers don't have guidance on how to play with location exploration, and to my knowledge, the interaction scene has really struggled to develop a solid game structure. The Alexandrian's party game structure is just about the only one I know of. Therefore, it's no surprise that most roleplayers probably opt for combat as the default game structure. For people engaged by a challenge, it's the easiest way to get your fix. Which brings me to the reasons why starting your game with combat is a logical and approachable choice. When reapproaching the role-playing game's hobby, you can get a lot of mileage out of running a really simple location-based game featuring combat. But more than that, it can be highly enjoyable to simply run a series of arena-style fights as a complete game experience in itself. Step one is to roll up or build some characters to play with, and step two is for the GM to grab some simple monsters from the rulebook. Traditional fantasy choices would include load-powered foes such as giant rats, goblins, kobolds and skeletons. As an aside, I think part of the continued failure of science fiction or modern gaming is the lack of obvious, easy-to-pick-up opponents for a quick fight scene. In those genres, the answer is to grab thugs, street gangers or even the equivalent of giant rats or goblins for the SF universe you're living in. It occurs to me that reskinning goblins as mutants or aliens is the simplest way to do this in SF games. Step three, then, is to run the fight using the core rules of your chosen game. Of course, if your game is pretty abstract and has minimalist combat rules, this will be less satisfying as a tactical challenge, but your mileage may vary. In my experience, running a fight scene is a great way for everyone to learn how the game's mechanisms work and build up some confidence when taking the next step. My advice is to create throwaway characters so everyone can learn the character creation part of the game and then run those characters through some combats with multiple weak opponents. The one goblin per character ratio is a good starting point with a natural follow-up being to double that ratio and see how differently it works when the characters are outnumbered. You'll learn the rules of the game and you'll also learn the basics of what you need to consider when creating a character for a full-blown adventure. It's better to learn this with throwaway characters than with the hero you're hoping to play longer term. Plus, the GM gets to practice calibrating fight scenes, which is an important skill. From there, give the proper characters a good easy fight early in the first scenario because it will build some confidence and remind everyone of the rules, allowing them to focus on the exploration and interaction next. And for goodness sake, do yourself a favour and learn how to run a decent dungeon crawl. We'll come to that in a future episode. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. As you know, I love to hear from you. If you've got a question or comment, then please hop over to speakpipe.com slash roleplayrescue, where you can leave a 90-second message, or a short one if you prefer. Alternatively, just open up a voice memo app on your device, record what you want to say or ask, and then email it directly to me via hello at rpgrescue.com. Thanks in advance for all your questions, and, well, this time, just a couple of short messages from Frank. Oh, wow. I, I just had to stop listening for a second because that intro was amazing yeah uh you can write hooks for me any day of the week
I'm I'm going to steal that. So thanks, Frank, for calling in and being impressed by episode one's intro before the theme. And I have to sort of burst your bubble a little bit and say, well, you know what? In case you didn't realize, I was quoting from Basic Role Playing 1980. There's a little bit of a scenario example in there, and I was reading a section of that out. And yeah, it's great, isn't it? It's just absolutely fab, but um, I can't claim that it's mine. And I'm really sorry if I gave the impression that it was. I thought that by mentioning BRP later in the episode, it'd kind of be clear. Um, But I guess you didn't get that far before you reacted. Uh, Though, I am pleased that you called back in. I have been waiting a very long time for this season. As a documentary filmmaker, I love to hear other people's stories, and I have been wanting to hear the story of how you got into this hobby in detail for a very long time. And that's it. Massive thanks to Frank for calling in today. Please do keep comments and questions coming. The link is speakpipe.com slash roleplayrescue. Thanks also to the Roleplay Rescue patrons who support the show through patreon.com slash rpgrescue. Your support really does make a difference, if not least in building community, but also in keeping me encouraged. And thanks to John from Tale of Manticore for the show music. Big thanks, of course, to you, the listener, for tuning in and lending me your ears. My name is Che Webster. This is Roleplay Rescue. See you again next time. Game on.